0: Hello, welcome to episode 76 of Herpetological Highlights with your hosts, me, Tom Major, and Ben Marshall. And this bi-week, we are going to be discussing a genus of snakes which we've had a reasonable amount of dealings with, I I would say, um, and are pretty cool. I think they're some of the, um, I'd say, I don't know whether they're some of the most iconic snakes because they're kind of... um,
1: Oh, they sort of. Hmm.
0: They keep a low profile. They kind of stay incognito.
1: Well, i i think I think it's cheating saying that. like you say, like, oh, oh, look, an iconic snake, but really, but really, it's only iconic because there's lots of them, and there's lots of different species of them, and they all look very similar. So I think that's yeah. It's not like seeing one species and being like, "That's an iconic species." It's that's an iconic, large super genera. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Super I think that's a good point. Like, yeah, if there were multiples of superheroes all kind of collectively doing good work, then they would perhaps, yeah, perhaps that icon. What's the word for like a collective iconicness? That. Uh, <coughs> but no, I understand what your point is. I'm rambling now, but what I'm trying to say is, yeah, you're right. They are not that iconic because there's like maybe 30 species that all look identical. And so people have probably seen photos of like a generic green pit viper and they're just like, oh, yeah, green pit vipers are cool. But actually, there's many different species pictured in those images.
1: And a lot of them look very, very similar.
0: As we'll get to later on, for sure. Like the majority of these species, not the majority, but I mean, certainly, I mean, yeah. Green pit vipers are speciose and yet, at a glance, they're really plain green. Quite often, they have a red tail. They might have a white stripe on the face for a lot of them, if they're male. Um,
1: Quite big heads in relation to the body. Yeah, but yeah, so... They have that distinct viper-shaped head. It's
0: very V-shaped, isn't it? It's like a nice... The neck's really slender, and the head's massive. Yeah, so we're talking about Tremerasaurus, which is a genus of snakes, a genus of pit vipers, family Ah. Crotalidae.
1: Ah, oh, but are they from
0: Well, this is the thing as oh. well, isn't it? Like, Yeah, some of them probably are Cryptellotrops. I think, personally, I, I back the um Generic Split. name for... Yeah. Certainly for the ones, you know, for um, White-Lips and Big-Eyed Pit Vipers. I think they belong in Cryptellotrops. But, you know... Um, it's a taxonomical thing, and a lot of the people who write about these snakes insist on using the names which other people insist are out of date. So, which mm-hmm. side do you take? I think the key thing to try and do is to not worry too much and just, um you know, worry sort...
1: about what snake you're looking yeah. at yeah <laughs> what to call it. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, just kind of at yeah, every opportunity, use the, use the one. Although, yeah, saying that, I say I feel strongly about crypteletrops, but this is a trimerosaurus special, and we're talking about snakes, which are arguably in the genus crypteletrops, formerly trimerosaurus. So, yeah, it's a bit of a... Uh...
1: Well, that's because we've latched on to the beautiful, beautiful thing is you use the most convenient name for <laughs> whatever you want. Exactly. <laughs> Taxonomy being subject to uh, practicality. And if you go back to trimerosaurus as the entire genus, well, you have a lot more to choose from. Mm. And it means we can talk about snakes that we're actually familiar with uh, personally, yeah. as opposed to um, talking about ones that we've just, just read papers about, which is a nice change. It is, it is. It's not, not always getting to do that.
0: So this is a Patreon request for Jeremiah Martin. So big up, Jeremiah. Thanks very much. And uh, yeah, you requested Tremersaurus. And as we're saying, we were kind of um, fast and loose with the Tremersaurus naming stuff and that allowed us to do some papers because actually tromerocerius despite having over 50 species if reptile database is to be belie- believed um the and as we've said the taxonomy does change frequently so you know that's probably that's probably asterisk, a ballpark
1: uh this 50 is subject to change at any given second yeah exactly <laughs> or, <laughs> or even going back and forth yeah So yeah yeah exactly
0: it's actually really entertaining because uh we're na- we're on a Skype call, as we always are recording this episode, but for the first time in many months, I've actually got Ben's visage on my screen. And uh, yeah, I'm just like chuckling away at all your idiosyncrasies, which I've missed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Talking with my hands. All yeah,
0: right. he's doing all sorts. He's drinking his juice, he's bowling around. I always have to stay really still because if I move too much, my microphone gets upset. So I'm always like locked in position but I can see you over there you you know your hands are going all over the place you're really you know exemplifying your points I feel like that's something I need to make more of an effort to do because I'm just like a, sta- a nervous statue in case I knock my desk or squeak my chair and my microphone is like Argh! and then in editing I'm just like you idiot stay still
1: but it's too late it's too late too by late, then
0: mate. it's too late by then so um yeah we're going to be talking about Tremere Siris on behalf of Jeremiah Martin and uh let's get stuck in to these Asian subfamily Critallinae, pit vipers with their heat-sensing pits found from India throughout Southeast Asia and China and on Pacific Islands, Tremerasuris.
1: Hmm. Where would you like to start?
0: Let's start at the beginning. Ah. When snakes took to water. Yeah?
1: Let's fast forward through that boring stage and... Uh... <laughs> let's let's discuss when they took to the took to the trees that's way better get these soggy snakes out of here (laughs) so (laughs) we could start with a paper published in current current herpetology in 2018 does current herpetology still exist um is it one of the ones that's that's become defunct
0: it's the publication of the herpetological society of japan
1: Hmm. I'm not sure if it still exists or not. I might be getting it confused with something else. Either way, we have a paper entitled "Arboreal Mating Behaviors of the Big-eyed Green Pit Viper, Trimeresurus macrops in Northeast Thailand." Uh, it's by Strine, Brown, Barnes, Major, uh, Chowakom, Hill, and Sawanwari. So this is this is all you now. This is this is your responsibility. This paper co-authored.
0: I suppose that's only fair. Yeah, the current the current issue of current... The current issue of current epitology, which is currently new... Current? Yeah, you could say it's current. Is August 2020. So, yes, they're so, still publishing.
1: Yes, it is still alive. So I am getting into And they're probably out for you now,
0: seeing as you just claim they no longer publish. They're going to be coming after oh. you, Ben.
1: Oh dear. <laughs> oh
0: dear, um, oh dear. Yeah, no, yeah, I was a co-author on this one. Um... Yeah, So we're talking about big eyed pit vipers and they're called big eyed pit vipers because of their tiny eyes, which um, <laughs> no, they've got huge <laughs> eyes, haven't they? They've got freakish eyes. And actually, I think um, of of the kind of I guess you'd say um, the kind of species complex around like alba and macrops and that kind of crew. That this one is very um, striking in its appearance because it's just got like you said earlier on, it's got that really defined head big big head but also massive eyes and i think if you google now a picture of a big-eyed pit viper it will be familiar to you because um yeah they just because
1: it will look like huge numbers of pit vipers that you have seen similarly <laughs> i don't think they're all that striking
0: <gasps> how could you say that They're so cool
1: i'm, say- I'm saying it in the sense that like yeah they do have big eyes but they almost look like juvenile other like juvenile other green yeah they're adorable because they've got that that, yeah i'm not saying they're not adorable but i'm not sure if striking's the right the right term because of this this whole green pit viper looking quite similar to each other thing going on
0: yeah okay i mean obviously adorable
1: 100 percent.
0: yeah okay well we'll agree to disagree on the striking thing because i personally think they're pretty badass they're one of my favorites um but yeah, I mean, they do look a lot like a bunch of other snakes, and as we'll see, there's still snakes being described that look functionally identical <laughs> to this one. Um,
1: that's that's all. That's all my. Point and even is, in the paper that... we're
0: going to cover later on. Anyway, I'll get to it later on. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So basically, the research station Ben still works at uh, Sakarat um, up in northeast Thailand. I was there as a volunteer helping out a guy called Kurt Barnes, who's a another co-author on this paper, uh, during his master's research. And his research was investigating the behavioral ecology, spatial ecology, and, you know, behaviors of the, uh, local green pit vipers, uh, not just Tremorosurus macrops or cryptelotrops macrops, um, but also, uh, Cryptellotropus the white-lipped pit viper. And yeah, throughout the course of that project, which was actually begun by Colin Strine, who is the lead author of this paper, um, They found out, well, we all found out a bunch of cool stuff about these snakes. And one of those things was um, actually for the first time uh, viewing and uh, observing and then subsequently publishing on their mating behaviours. So prior to this, nothing had been written about how they mate in the wild. And so, yeah, this was kind of like breaking ground on what they do. And it includes three observations, this paper. Um, the first two, I would say, are a little bit more vanilla. You have got two snakes in each case, yeah. a male and a female, and they're getting it on in trees. And these are arboreal pit vipers, for the most part. Um, they're not; they're seldom found on the ground. They're usually found like just off the ground in like bushes and trees and things like that. And um, yeah, they're bright green. They're quite hard to spot in the daytime. In the nighttime, it's quite easy because if you've got a torch, they really are really bright green. They're brighter than trees. So well, you and there's something
1: about the it, artificial light. That really picks them up.
0: It makes them pop, doesn't I don't know. it?
1: Yeah, I don't know what it is. Uh, maybe yeah. it's just a way it's it's different from how leaves interact with the artificial light. But there is there's something going on there.
0: Yeah, they do. They do. They do stand out when you shine a light on them. But yeah, the first two there was basically just separate occasions of two snakes being seen mating um, in the evening time. One was over a river, but yeah, just a male and a female copulating in a tree. Okay, cool. That's what big-eyed pig vipers ones- do.
1: Very, very close to human structures too. That's true. Which is that—that's something. So snakes being uh, tolerant, I guess, of of human present and human presence and getting on with whatever they're doing. So
0: yeah, <laughs> whatever they're doing. <laughs>
1: whatever they're doing.
0: Yeah. If the bushes are rocking, don't come a knocking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry about that. So yeah, at eight o'clock. Uh, this is the we'll, we'll move on to the third um, observation because I was there so I can actually talk about that one and uh, yeah it's eight o'clock in the evening and someone spotted two snakes and they are literally in there's like a um, so the research station is like a, se- a series of buildings there's like administrative buildings there's like a mechanics a car garage place there's like a cafeteria and then there's like numerous dwellings where either researchers or students are like living you know it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a um, impressive collection of buildings in the forest and outside one of the buildings there's like, this is actually right at the main entrance wasn't it, there's like a row of bushes about oh, sort of
1: yeah, like, about. Uh, small, small trees and bushes and sort of scrubby but still foresty undergrowth
0: <laughs> yeah thank you for clarifying what a small bush is so um <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's why i that's why That's why I pay these big bucks. Yeah, this
0: guy's a big though. He knows all about the bushes. So, um, it's yeah. it has got these woody
1: structures. <laughs> if you look closely, you can see worms around the roots. <laughs> but where does a sapling
0: end and a bush begin? So, yeah, basically someone, I think it was Sammy, Sammy Assad, uh, who is like, um, he's a Bornean principally frog researcher i think um Mm -hmm. pretty cool Mm -hmm. guy friend of ours and uh yeah on his way out to a survey and he pointed out that there was these two big-eyed pit vipers just jamming around in this bush um so ordinarily when someone tells us about snakes we just grab them because like we're trying to get morphometric measurements on these snakes and you know get a little bit about there i think this was prior to the sexual size dimorphism paper maybe or maybe it wasn't
1: nope it's two years after
0: two years after oh okay okay um
1: i think i'm pretty positive that's 2016
0: Yeah, you seem sure. So then, regardless, we were still trying to, like, you know, get morphometrics as part of the Mark Recapture that was going on. And, uh, but luckily, Bart, uh, Bartos Nadolski, who's another researcher at the research station, had the presence of mind to be like, wait, don't catch them. They might do something. Um, And sure enough, me and Kurt decided to set out and watch them. And uh, 20 minutes later, the two snakes began mating and they were sort of copulating in this low bush just outside the cafeteria, as I've said. And um, the females are much bigger than the males. So if you were to see this scene, the first thing that would strike you is that the females are massive compared to the males. They're like twice the size. And uh, yeah, the snakes started to mate and they continued to mate for a couple of hours. Not a lot happened. It was all pretty standard. The female kind of moved around a little bit in this bush. Um, At one point, she kind of went up in the bush and dragged the male behind her, which was like kind of bit wincy because you could see what he was being dragged by which was his hemipene which was like <laughs> you know not very pleasant uh, but anyway that carried on for a couple of hours and it was pretty chill not much going on but then about 10.45 in the evening someone spotted a third snake hanging around on the ground near the pair and um, me and Kurt wanted to record this observation in full because as I said like you know no one had written anything about these snakes mating in the wild so we were keen to try and see what was going to happen and so and is
1: it a- it's pretty rare to see snakes mating arboreally right that was that was the other sort of neat aspect of this yeah
0: and I think that probably just reflects the fact that arboreal snakes are harder to sort of observe That's doing true. anything right yeah. like yeah yeah um but yeah prior to this I think the only snakes that had been seen in the wild mating in a tree were um diamond pythons in Australia mm. So it's kind of neat that they're actually just like you know not only are they arboreal, when they're hunting, you know, and when they're resting and whatever, but they're also mating up in the trees, which is pretty cool. Um, or in this case in a bush. So yeah, me and Kurt decided let's stay up all night and watch these snakes mate. And uh, yeah, it got pretty weird. <laughs> no, it didn't. It was pretty vanilla. Up <laughs> we were just chilling out. We, um, yeah, we were just like, I mean, for a lot of the night they didn't really do a lot. So we just kind of, um, settled in, you know, drank a ton of coffee and just like chatted rubbish to each other. Um, through the night, and then at about five o'clock in the morning, when things started happening, we were both pretty wired, and uh, it was still dark. But the a third mysterious snake had been spotted earlier on in the evening, and um, we were kind of wondering whether or not the snake would, you know, come into come into play at any point. And sure enough, five a.m. rolls around, and uh, this third snake, which we assumed to be a male, and later found out was a male, began to climb the bush that the snakes were mating on with intent. And as soon as this interloping male reached the mating couple, quite to our surprise, the um male which was mating with the female actually bit the third snake on right on the head. Literally just like wow, struck him <laughs> straight on the head. And
1: He's uh, <laughs> been waiting for hours for an opportunity, slowly moves up and BAM, straight on the back of the head. <laughs> yeah, literally
0: like the most patient animal on God's green earth just like slowly cruises up, saunters <laughs> over, and the male's just like, "No, have that. And, um, I mean, this was very exciting for us because obviously we'd stayed up all night in the hopes that something would happen and, you know, expectations were beginning to wane and sure enough, we get some like snake combat live, which was awesome. And, um, yeah, following on from that, the male was bitten. He was quite surprised, I think as well. And there's like blood coming out of his head. So it's a pretty good bite. Um... But this didn't actually put the snake off. So he tried to approach again, and this prompted more violence from the male, which was already mating the female. He struck him twice more, although we couldn't see that there was any sort of bite wounds from those. And after that, they actually engaged in a wrestling match where they rolled together on the floor. That was kind of more akin to what you'd expect from snake combat, where they were, like, sort of loosely trying to force each other down. But really, it was all happening very fast, and they were just kind of, like, intertwining with each other. Meanwhile, of course, like they're doing that the two males have like dropped to the floor and they're just like battling on the floor but the hemipene of the the male that was originally mating is actually still inside the female and it is like stretched out horribly it's just like an elastic band ready to snap but um it never did snap which was good um thankfully after a while it seemed as though the interloping male was like needed a break so he sort of moved about 30 or 40 centimetres away. So the pair is still mating and the uh, interloping male is just like hanging out nearby. Um, and that went on for about an hour and a half. They're all just kind of chilling until just after 7 a.m. the interloper came back and like bopped the male who was mating with his head. It was quite a targeted attack. He like snuck up and just went bop and the male which was mating had obviously begun to relax because it fell straight out of the bush onto the floor. And... Um, yeah, That didn't actually stop them mating, though. The hemipene was still attached. So although the male was on the floor, he was still mating the female. And then everything kind of calmed down for a bit until a little while later the male decided to get involved again. And this time he was, like, on top and sort of next to the mating pair. And he was using his tail to, like, wriggle and try and, like... Where the two mating snakes' tails were, like, interlocked, he was, like, pressing his tail in between them and trying to, like, force them apart. Um... He was eventually successful and uh, the two copulating snakes separated and then the new male tried to mate with the female but she seemed pretty disinterested and it didn't actually happen. And then uh, after that, they all just kind of went their separate ways. And after about another sort of hour, we decided like, let's capture these snakes and we can like find out for definite who's who and what's what. And sure enough, it was two males and a female. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, we'd kind of seen this rather... Slow motion, but exciting. It was sort of like uh, obviously, it was a long time to be watching snakes, mate, but it was kind of uh, interspersed with moments of great excitement. And also, no one had seen these snakes biting each other before, so it was pretty sweet. Like, we were buzzing. Um, Yeah, yeah.
1: Buzzing, buzzing from that, and buzzing from the coffee. I remember seeing the footage that you recorded. It's it's some Blair Witch level <laughs> shaky. It's, it's great. <laughs> Zoomed in. Mate, there it is. There's like... a snake. It's gone right for me. <laughs> I was zooming in I was going like frame crazy, by, frame by frame, trying to get a frame that was like entirely in focus for the diagrams. Uh, oh, that's boy. mad.
0: Yeah, I was. Just... <laughs> uh, I think it was
1: on a it was on a tripod or a monopod or something. So there was... <laughs> yeah, um, it was a uh, it's pretty
0: shaky footage. I mean, mate, I was like, I'm surprised I didn't overdose on caffeine. Like, it's a miracle there's any footage at all. I mean, me and Kurt were just like, <laughs> yeah, but we the were coffee, in the zone. yeah,
1: the, the the hot water boiler was what, fifteen yards away, something yeah, like that. Yeah,
0: yeah, I wasn't. Yeah, it was like. Lots of coffee and then, like, Milo powder in the coffees. It was, like, delicious caffeinated <laughs> mockers. Yeah, we were just on one. But it was very exciting. Um, and, yeah, this was the resulting paper. And, yeah, I guess, like, you know, okay, you might think, oh, well, you, you saw some snakes meeting in a tree, big whoop, and, like, okay, fine. But I think what's exciting about this is the fact that we saw biting as like a aggressive behavior from venomous snake to venomous snake is something which is like really rarely recorded and something which kind of we didn't really expect to see and um no as a result of seeing that i kind of scoured some literature and tried to find other examples where vipers had bitten each other and it is very rare it only really seemed to occur in captivity uh you know, in the sort of earlier part of the 20th century, lots of people were publishing um observation, behavioral observations of snakes that were taking, taking place in captivity. And so there's various incidents of like, there might be three or four vipers in a vivarium or in a pit or whatever it might be. And um yeah, they're like, seen <laughs> to the be pit Viper. yeah, they seem to be combating and, you know, they're like, they might be doing the kind of ritualized combat, but then they might be like biting involved as well. But you just don't know in that environment, whether or not they're, yeah whether or not they do that in the world or whether it's just because like it might be the case that there's a subordinate animal that can't get away or whatever it is um and they Mm -hmm, end up biting mm -hmm. each other so yeah first time wild um venomous vipers had been seen biting each other because you just kind of i always kind of assumed because you see the like you call it ritualized combat and i think like ritualizing anything is a little bit beyond the scope of what snakes can do but the, the the reason i think it's called ritualized combat is because it's not combat where you're trying to kill it's not combat
1: yeah yeah or even maim or, or disable an opponent You're it, it is a test of strength or or prowess or whatever the correct term is yeah yeah it's a, it's a competition yeah it's yeah. like
0: um it is just a, a demon and a demonstration of superiority without any actual violence and then you know contrary to what you normally see where snakes wind around and try and get on top of each other and force the well, other one down. This was biting, which was, yeah, a big surprise.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure about the damage aspect, actually. Because because you think of... Uh, well, I suppose they're not reptiles, are they?
0: What are you thinking of?
1: Well, just, just like elephant seals and things like that. They take a pounding when they're combating. Like there is there's damage done to individuals, and I'm trying to think of a reptile example where individuals are taking like are taking injuries during combat, and therefore slightly undermining this the idea of it being ritualistic rather than you know one one giving up because of damage sustained. Hmm. Um, I'm wondering if maybe Komodos.
0: Oh yeah, komodos go go pretty savage on each other, don't they? Lots of monitor lizards do.
1: Yeah, so maybe monitors are a I mean there's a ritualized to
0: element to that as well though because it's like Absolutely. it's standing yeah, on not... the, the hind legs and using the tail as like a pivot and they are kind of whacking into each other, but they're not so yeah. much using the teeth, I don't think. The teeth probably do come into it a bit, but
1: Well that's what I'm wondering, I'm wondering where you draw that line between uh, sort of purely ritualistic combat, and sort of combat that has an element of injury, and it's a degree of injury that causes it to stop, rather than um, you know one being stronger or the other. Like one could get lucky, essentially, and and land a good blow that would would end the fight early.
0: Mm, yeah, I like your Cause... example of elephant seals, though. Although watching them fight is quite frustrating, isn't it? Because they're just like these big slugs of meat and they're just whacking into each other you just think if they had arms <laughs> it would abbreviate the whole situation give them a slap <laughs> do you know what i mean it's, it's a nightmare situation they do stick their teeth out though don't they and they kind of like
1: yeah do the worm. they, they do the worm. latch on to each other God.
0: yeah it's yeah not nice but like you said they're not reptiles so who cares uh,
1: exactly yeah it's it's reptiles i feel like it's slightly harder to i'm sure there must be examples
0: you got any frog combat you got any frog to frog combat examples
1: Frog to frog combat.
0: There must be some.
1: There must be. I mean, it's definitely frog wrestling, isn't there?
0: Yeah, and I mean, frogs, frogs tend there to get very weird... works up in the old breeding pools.
1: They do, and there were ones that were accidentally drowning slash drowning each other that we discussed a while back. The um. Oh yeah. What yeah, were yeah. they? The some sort of desert frog that was doing that.
0: And cane toads will famously mate with like a beach ball if it's floating by.
1: Yeah, but that's not really the same as combat.
0: Maybe they hate beach balls, I don't know.
1: I've <laughs> got a funny way to show it. Um, <laughs> I I feel like there are some frogs that probably do have some sort of... Don't you get like fanged frogs and stuff?
0: Yeah, there's those I'm... ones. Isn't there a
1: species yeah. of weird fanged frog?
0: Yeah, it's those ones that it comes out of the side of their face, doesn't it? But it wounds them, I think. Are they like teeth?
1: Oh, not the ones with the headbutting. Not the headbutting ones. Oh gosh, I'm a bit out of my depth here. Yeah, let's just pass on it. Let's just. I'm just getting pictures of people having photoshopped vampire teeth into frogs. Well, leave we'll leave this with a big question mark and lots of mystery. (laughs) Yeah, maybe if anyone's
0: got an example of frogs fighting against each other, send us a link because that'd be a cool topic for an episode.
1: Battle frogs
0: battle frogs we've even got the title sorted out already mm-hmm. so um yeah that is kind <laughs> of the end of that paper um i will say there's some lines in this paper i don't like if you're gonna go read this <laughs> i want to i want to say this here publicly because i disagreed with this when this was in press and like i got downvoted basically at the end it says okay basically the point that we were making is like well the point that my co-authors were making is that um t crops. Tremerosaurus macrops. Where they're mating at the end of the rainy season, right? So this was in October. Um, they're mating in September and October, where it's nice and wet in Thailand. Um, and these are snakes which bite a lot of people, right? Like,
1: Yeah, it's up there with, I think it's most bites are coming from Tremerosaurus species, but thankfully not the most deaths yeah. because their venom isn't yeah. that way inclined. They bite it's lots so of people. because local, local damage, not. Yeah, they bite lots Not of people because they're, the,
0: they're in the bushes and stuff. But um, Yeah, and it's green on killing green, people.
1: you know. Yeah, green on green on
0: green. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the end of the paper, it says, knowledge of the time of mating of T-macrops has relevance to snake bite prevention because male snakes may show increased activity and defensive behavior, being more prone to bite during mating season. Okay, we said may. That's a good start. But personally, I think... <laughs> <it>
1: all... <laughs> Uh, I love, I lo- I love this with having stuff that you've been a part of because it actually it lets you lets you pick it apart, yeah, guilt free, yeah. So. <laughs>
0: The, the last sentence of the paper is thus risk of t macrop snake bite could be elevated at the end of the rainy season in northeast thailand and I'm, i think that originally said the risk of t macrop snake bite is elevated at the end of the rainy season and the word aggression i remember was taken out and replaced with defensive behavior but i still don't think there's any evidence to suggest that the risk of snake bite is elevated during the breeding season and um in the other paper we're about to uh we're about to discuss they actually cite this paper and mention that part of it that we'd said they're more likely to bite in the rainy season i hate that i hate that i don't think it's true at all i think there's no evidence i think it all came from like someone found a paper or a book which said like oh there's more testosterone during the mating season and testosterone is linked to aggression that's just such a gross oversimplification testosterone can be a counterbalance to some of the um what's the other one um what's the other stress hormone um, uh,
1: corticostero- cortic- yeah. cortico- cortico-
0: corticosterone 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 um, yeah yeah it can actually one. be it can actually temper the effects of cortisol so yeah that's just not true so anyway i just thought i'd get that off my chest
1: yeah it, it's a little bit beyond the scope of well it's actually a chunk beyond the scope of what the note is yes it's something to investigate further um I feel like if you'd mo- if that was moved somewhere else in the discussion and it didn't end on it, you'd have less of an issue with it.
0: Yeah, I just don't necessarily think that's accurate. But otherwise, I think it's pretty cool. I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed being a part of this.
1: Yeah, it was a cool observation, a cool little uh, scenario, which which plays into sort of broader patterns that people have seen in other species with a dimorphism and and things along those lines and kind of novel and neat because it's in a tree
0: it's in a tree right even if
1: the tree is quite small
0: (laughs) and if you do need to know anything more about what constitutes a tree uh, I know a guy so let's move on (laughs) So Barnes, Farron, Strine, and Suenwari, 2020, social behaviour displayed by the green pit viper, Trimerosaurus cryptellitrops Macrops, tropical natural history. So the title says social behaviour displayed by the green pit viper, but temper your expectations; they aren't making friends. Whoa! Yeah, this is sociality by its strictest definition. Animals are interacting with each other. I wouldn't necessarily say there. I wouldn't necessarily say it's social behaviour. Um but it's certainly interesting observations of snakes interacting with each other um in ways which you know previously we weren't aware of so again this is the same same guys looking at the same snakes um Kurt's the lead author for this time um you know this is a res- result of uh this is actually a result of um putting camera traps out so what what, what Kurt and um, what I was helping out with when I was there is like we'd find a snake and it might be one that we were tracking or it might not and uh, we'd set up a Bushnell um, camera so like a trail camera and the camera would be pointing at the snake and then we'd leave it overnight and it would take a picture every minute or so and then we'd review the footage. Reviewing the footage was painful because the snakes <laughs> so never do, do anything, anything. <clears throat> Just sit there. oh god god yeah they just sit there and then they sit there and they sit there and they sit there for night night after night after night and occasionally they'll eat something and that is pretty cool and um
1: but if they eat it in in you know a couple of minutes you get two photographs of it right <laughs> yeah 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 yeah
0: and like i think yeah i'm like making light of this as a method but i actually think it's really cool i think it's a good method and i think it is without yeah. without it you know i mean we just said how many people have witnessed green pit vipers mating like a few a handful of people and um how many people have witnessed agonistic encounters outside of that one we've just talked about well none so this is actually the first you know the first evidence that these snakes are actually kind of doing these social interactions well, certainly, certainly um,
1: documented in this fashion i mean I'm, I'm i'm sure a lot of these things have been observed but just not formally written up in a way that's accessible
0: yeah that's i mean that's yeah i mean that goes for all things to do with um snake you know behavioral yeah. ecology stuff but it, i d- mean anytime we say like this is the first record yeah like obviously people have been seeing this i mean you assume that people have been seeing this stuff and i mean human beings have been living on a, alongside these animals for our yeah. entire history so like there's a good chance in the past 100,000 or so years since apes became (laughs) man, somebody's seen a snake do a thing. Yeah, I mean, but no one's written it down. Yes.
1: In in a language we can understand.
0: In a language we can speak and read. Uh, Yeah, so basically, yeah, the trail cameras are on the pit vipers. And generally speaking, what Kurt does is he sets it up and it's pointing at the snake. The snake's in ambush, right? So the snake's sitting there, coiled up with a little S-bend in its neck, and it's waiting for a frog or a lizard to walk by. And then smash. Predation event. But what what they didn't expect to see is that occasionally, when a snake's ambushing, another snake will come across it. And as it turns out, the snake which is ambushing will actually chase the interloping snake away, seemingly perhaps defending its Little spot. chosen ambush site. Mm-hmm. Could be argued that that's a bit of a stretch. It could just be, you know, territoriality. Really, we don't know. But what happens is... There's a few instances in this paper where a snake will be ambushing and another one will come along and the snake will react aggressively and chase the other snake away. And that's quite surprising because other authors talking about these snakes have actually explicitly said that big-eyed pit vipers are known to completely ignore each other, 100% ignore each other. They would never, ever do anything when they see another snake. And of course, as it turns out, that's not so quite is true. That-
1: them ignoring each other because there are people about watching them and therefore they are more inclined to not move due to their primary defence being, you know, crypsis, not being spotted. And so this camera trap method is relaxing that a little bit. It could be that. I'm just thinking of reasons why it would differ and having people about. I feel like...
0: I think that's one argument. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it could well be, because we are predators to these animals, that... um... Yeah, they're just staying put when we're about. Mm -hmm. That's one option. I think the more likely explanation is just the simple fact that we don't spend enough hours observing them. them. That's
1: true. Yeah,
0: because, I mean, Kurt and Co., they've got 34,000 minutes of footage here. And, I mean, I've probably spent about 12,000 minutes.
1: 34,000 minutes. What does that translate to in something into smaller numbers? 32,000 over 60. I'm not going to do that in my head because I'm lazy. Five hundred thirty-three hours. Damn. Okay, let's divide that by twenty-four. Twenty-two days. My gosh, they went through all of that.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: How many? How many images yeah. per? Oh, it's an image per minute, right? Yeah. 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 Okay, so it's a little bit cheeky, saying minutes, but it makes sense. That is the duration of the study. Yeah. All right. All right. So 32,000 images, that's a lot of images to go through. It is, yeah. yeah I, w- and, I would have, um, I probably... would have made, wanted to make some sort of small robot to do that for me. Yeah, I
0: did a bit of it. <clears throat> Sometimes you get to see stick insects mating on the camera, it's pretty funny.
1: <laughs> As in on the camera or near the snake?
0: All over, mate, all no. over, mate. They are promiscuous, let's say that. And... uh Yeah, unabashed copulation from the stick insects all over the screen, really. Outrageous. Um, But yeah. So, yeah, essentially, I think this is kind of like a little teaser, really, isn't it, for Kurt's um, PhD at large? Because he's now gone on, he's still doing a lot of camera trap stuff and he's still researching these same snakes in Thailand. So I think this is kind of a precursor to what he's now doing um, with like videography and analysis and Mm -hmm. stuff. So I think there'll probably be some cool stuff coming from his direction in the future, yep. which we can look yep. forward to. But yeah, no, it's cool paper, you know, friends of ours as authors. And uh, yeah, some like novel behavior. And the thing is like, it takes time to build up an idea of how animals operate. You imagine like the first person to see two lions have a fight was just like, wow, two lions have a fight. And now look how much we understand about the like social complexity of lions. And I'm not saying that pit vipers are going to turn out to have social structures as complicated as lions. But we do know that, They're not completely devoid of social behaviours. You know, rattlesnakes are more likely to be found aggregating in dens or basking with snakes that they are related to over snakes they aren't related to, Mm -hmm. even when you account for where they um, themselves were born. So it's like, you know, rattlesnakes know who their family are. They hang out together. You know, there's definitely scope for more stuff of that ilk to come from snakes. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a good building. Yeah, I don't up.
1: think there's any reason to assume a lack of sociality either. Okay, it's hard to, you know, it's, okay, why haven't we seen it sort of stuff, but animals operate in the world in lots of different ways and they're not ways that we do, so they're working on cues that we don't see, we don't react to, so it's...
0: And then yeah. they're doing it more slowly as well. Like, the observation that we were just talking about where we saw the snakes biting each other... They did that over 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Now, you've got to have a lot of patience to watch things for 12 hours. Um, you know, that interaction... If, you, if, 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 if Basically, yeah, if a male and female human being were copulating and then an interloping male came and there was fisticuffs, that would be like a two-minute interaction. And then it would all be done and dusted. So, timescales for behaviours like this. Yeah. So, it's worth considering. So, from snakes in trees... It's the snakes in streams.
1: Yes, yes, that's that's where we're going. Uh, we have a paper published in the Herpetological Bulletin in
0: twenty
1: fifteen. Fifteen. Uh, malabaricus. Yeah. Hmm. Diving behavior and underwater apnea. Duration, underwater apnea duration.
0: Yes, apnea or breath holding.
1: By Base Hair and Pelling. i got to, bef- before we get into this paper, I've got to complain. Uh, we've had three different journals, correct? Three herpetological yeah. journals. We have current herpetology, we have tropical natural history, which isn't actually strictly herpetology, so that's, you know. And then herpological bulletin. And they all do the block capital author list. I hate, I that. hate it. <laughs> I want to copy and if they're not coming up in my citation manager properly, they've got the block capitals, so I've got to change them by hand. It's Very frustrating.
0: Yeah, luckily Word has that like highlight sentence case thing, which helps. Yeah. But it's not like I just don't want to have to do I, any I of that. If you're I simply a journal, don't understand why yeah, they why do capital letters i mean yeah it's just it's just difficult no one's shouting anyone else's name (laughs) don't do it
1: well i suppose unless they are
0: unless they are and then so yeah Trimerosaurus malabaricus Mm -hmm. the malabar pit viper this species is endemic to the western ghats of india uh, the western ghats, ghat is a word in common use in India, it refers to valleys. It's essentially a word for like hillsides and valleys. And the western ghats are an area on the western coast of India, hence the name. And they catch all the moisture coming in off the ocean, making them lush, forested and a big hot spot for biodiversity. Yeah,
1: we've talked about western ghats many times before. I feel, I feel we had a new species description. We talked about those weird purple frogs. It comes up all the time.
0: It's all coming from the Gats. Mm -hmm. And the Gats are covered in water sources. And this is a viper which is often found near water. And they love eating frogs. And the Malabar pit viper, it's quite variable in colour. The base colour can be like yellow, green or brown with like, you know, various kind of markings. They can also be quite dark in colour. They can be like sort of dark browny, almost black. Um, So variable in colour. And... Again, a snake which there isn't a huge amount known about their ecology. Um, people have been wasting their time tracking king cobras around here and <laughs> ignoring the vipers from what I can well, see. Well,
1: no, sometimes sometimes they, they looked at the vipers as they were consumed by the king cobra. But, uh... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so in actually in, in this exact case, they were following a king cobra the authors, using radio telemetry. And the authors saw a Malabar pit viper on the bank of a small stream. The King Cobra didn't see it, thankfully for the viper. Otherwise, as you've said, Ben, it would probably have been lunch. But shortly after the cobra passed by, the snake decided, I'm getting in the stream. And the snake swam to the centre of the stream, did some strange jerking motions, and then it coiled around an underwater branch and remained submerged for 20 minutes. And it was tongue-flicking under the water... Suggesting it was having a good smell, maybe hunting. Who knows? Maybe frogs. You maybe know, fish. Posture. Maybe frogs. Maybe fish. Maybe it was just scared of the king cobra. Who maybe knows? it was scared we of just the people. We really don't know. Could be scared mm-hmm. of the people. Yeah, probably more likely actually. People traveling through the forest with a much less low profile than a king cobra. I should I think. I would think so. Yeah. Um, but yeah. The news is the snake went underwater and there's only other one other viper which is known to be aquatic
1: in in quotation and, marks aquatic like yeah not not uh, marine or pure aqu- no yeah not pure aquatic you call it semi aquatic wouldn't
0: you I'd say so we're talking about the cottonmouth Aye. in the USA yeah, um, sort of semi-aquatic. Yeah, I don't know really. I think they do spend quite a lot of time in the water. I I've never suppose seen...
1: aquatic still living in wet areas. It doesn't necessarily mean they have to breathe and and mate in in the water. I suppose does it? No, I suppose aquatic no. is just fine. I'm being I'm being overly harsh.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it is what it is. But um, yeah, there are lots of other snakes which eat frogs and fish and hang around in the water and even hunt underwater um and of course sea snakes do it but uh yeah vipers not so much so it's kind of an interesting observation and um they paired that with another individual of the same species which was seen floating in a water tank known to be a breeding pool for the malabar gliding frogs raca with the hilarious hands yeah they got big hands they're bright green they're pretty cool Um, And during the monsoon season, oh boy, they get excited. It's raining. They're whipped up into a frenzy. uh, They're mating like crazy. And uh, yeah, it's a really good time to be a Malabar pit viper because they will be chowing down on these frogs. And sure enough, the snake's in this water tank, stretched out in the water. It's kind of floating at the edge of the water tank with its body sort of like leaning on the edge. But its head is underwater and its head is like down in the water. Mm. And it stayed like this for a long time.
1: But it's puffed up. It's puffed up, so it's floating on top. It's not secured to anything. It is just floating on the top of the water with its head below. It's a very weird looking pose. Because the other one, sort of round a branch underneath, looks more uh, classically viper, classically uh, coiled S shape ambush position. This one is considerably less. Yeah, I would said it was an S shape.
0: Yeah, I think the first one i wouldn't i looked at it and i don't think it's necessarily you can't definitely say that's um an ambush position I okay think it's like it's kind of coiled up but you've got
1: to admit it's more um, ambushy than the second one
0: oh i freely admit yeah. that yeah yeah um yeah you're right the second one's just confusing it's like okay, is
1: sad deflating balloon yeah <laughs> do you need help little friend um
0: But, you know, I think uh, it's basically this is just a sort of call to arms for viper biologists to go and study this snake in more detail, because it could be the case that this is a snake which is hunting underwater, which is doing all kinds of uh, aquatic things. Mm -hmm. You know, in the monsoon season, particularly in the Western Ghats in this region, it's insanely wet. So having a snake which is adapted to kind of do various things in those conditions shouldn't be a surprise. And yet here we are seeing it swim underwater for the first time. So yeah, it's kind of like a a call to arms. Let's see what let's see what this snake's actually doing. Uh let's have a closer look at Tremerus malabaricus.
1: It's neat. I can guarantee that. Whatever it's doing, it's going to be neat.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's a cool snake doing a confusing thing. So um yeah, fun. Yeah, not just food for king cobras, but also animals with habits in their own right. Malabar pit viper.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so... Uh, yeah. I mean, I think the fact that we just covered a paper where the, sna- the, the news... The headline of course, snake is was that underwater. snake goes... Yeah. Snake goes underwater. I mean, th- that really... As much as it is cool, I think it does also exemplify the lack of publications focusing on Tremorosuris that aren't to do with confusing Venom stuff or people getting bitten, which is interesting, and, you know, uh, but it's not what we're doing here.
1: It's only interesting up to a point.
0: Well, this is what I mean. Yeah, like, I don't know. I mean, I... I'm curious about how venom works, but um it's not as it's not really what our chief interest no, is no and
1: to to make it accessible to people, you actually have to have a pretty decent understanding of it or at least a background of it, and that means really digging into some nasty venom work and under you know fully understanding it, which I don't have time to do
0: it turns into chemistry at some point Aye. and then you're just like, what how many moles of that
1: what what moles." <laughs> Moles live underground. Yeah,
0: exactly. Moles better stay subterranean. So, let's move on to our species of the bi-week. Yeah, yeah. We've got a brand new green pit viper, freshly described, hot the See, press. now you can
1: you can pull the audio from the beginning of the episode while we're describing. Um, describing macrops yeah you just paste that in here you can go have some early dinner so
0: ben is making light of the fact that this snake looks like all the other ones and um yeah he's not wrong because it really really does i actually i mean i have to say the photos in these papers these there's like a loose, large team of people who are publishing on these this kind of species complex. The names are quite familiar. And um, in every single one, the photography is like real, real it's good. Nice. Like, yeah, it's yeah, really yeah, nice. Yeah, 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 Beautiful pictures of these snakes. Um, and it is. It's a green pit viper with a nice yellow eye. It's, it's got that slight is...
1: um, blueness to it, to some of the scales. Yeah, which you around see the head. In, um, I feel like you see in macphob's more than alba Labris, but I... Feel like do, this has a nice alberabras-like front of face.
0: Yeah, but... I think it's got alberabras front of face, and then Macrop's eye. Yeah, and then Macrop's jaw. Yeah. So it really does just look like a big-eyed pit viper, I'll be honest. I, it, is, it is uncanny how similar it looks. And uh, they, they actually do explicitly say in the paper, there's like a, a section on how it differs from all the other species. And in the macrops bit, it just says like, yeah, basically same. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, you
0: know. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. Yeah, no, it says here, the al- excuse me, the albalabrus one albalabrous, is different from macrops. Yeah. But in terms of albalabrus, the white-lipped pit viper, it says uh, hemipenes relatively longer... Okay, oh, so the hemipenes are actually twice as long. Okay, that's, that's a, big a big difference, difference but not going
1: to be something that you're going to spot easily in the field.
0: Um, an orange stripe on the ventral part of the tail is also different. Right. Albulabras doesn't have that. Oh, and actually, yes. if you look at the pictures, yes, yes, the yes. little red stripe on the underneath is pretty cool. Like, I've certainly, you know, seen, we've seen Albulabras up close. You don't see that neat little red stripe no. underneath. So, like, the ventral scales, the subcaudal scales on the tail. They've got like a thin red band running down them, uh, surrounded by green, and that's pretty nice. Yeah. And then on the top, there's like a thick red band on top of the tail. Um,
1: Fascinating. I wonder is... what its purpose is, if it has any. Yeah. That's very cool.
0: So one thing I want to say is, the first line of this paper is, because they're setting up setting the scene where they compare this snake to the white-lipped pit viper, Trimeresurus or Cryptellotropes abilabris. And the first line of this paper is, the white-lipped tree viper, Tramericaeus albalabris, is one of the most common species of the genus Tramericaeus. I just want to say, if you're going to publish a brand new species, don't use it as a platform to try and impose your favourite common name of a snake on the rest of us, alright? No one calls white-lipped pit vipers white-lipped tree vipers. Nobody. I've never heard it. Have you ever heard that?
1: No, but then maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's the Chinese translation give me a break hey i'm man. just i'm thinking i'm i'm, I'm thinking it <laughs> yeah you like, might well it's be not right. like we have uh, international stand you know standardized international names like you do with birds so no you're right yes granted i've never heard it called white lip tree viper but that's that's not really saying much
0: well i've never called it that and i never will
1: <laughs> damn it <laughs>
0: So etymology. What have they called this new snake? And it is different. It's uh, genetically different. And as we've said, there's like various morphological characters which yeah, differentiate it, it from other species. Four different and...
1: genes, I think. Something
0: yeah, like the classic, the usual, the usual suspects: site B and
1: ND four, whatever the other ones
0: are. ND 4 12S and...
1: and 16S.
0: That's it. The usual suspects. Um, and yeah, they've called it Trimerosaurus cordornatus. Which is cool. It means the specific name of the new species was made up of the Latin word "cord" tail, and ornatus, ornamental, indicating a red stripe on the subcordal scales, as we just discussed. And as a common name, we discuss, we, excuse me, we suggest ornamental tailed pit viper, which is lovely.
1: I, I, I think it's a great name because um, it's, the, I think I, it, it is an interesting tail thing. I don't. I can't think of another Green Pit Viper with that sort of tail, that underside tail marking, which is really neat. So I, I like that as a mm. as a name. You're going to spot that, potentially spot that in the field and be like, oh, right, it's this, not that. Kind of nicely unambiguous in that regard. It's purpose, who knows, but uh, fascinating, really.
0: Yeah, and this, this is uh, from Yunnan province in China. So, yeah, I mean... Who knew another species to come out of uh, what were thought to be white-lipped tree vipers? So uh, yeah, brand new species, and um, it's spectacular. And
1: uh, yeah, and I suppose if it was, if you were to be using the cryptelotrops terminology, it would be a cryptelotrops, would it? What is what is what is uh, insularis?
0: Um, I think Insularis is Cryptelotrops.
1: Well, if that's the case, then it's oh, going yeah. to be Cryptelotrops, nested- isn't it?
0: Oh, well, it's nested within. Yeah, it's, 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 it's part of Alvalabris' team, so I think. Uh,
1: oh, okay. Yes, yeah, Insularis is Cryptelotrops as well. So it's going to yeah, be between definitely. two Cryptelotrops, so it's would likely be one of those as well. If you wanted to use that nomenclature.
0: Yeah, which many people do.
1: So, cool. Welcome to being scientifically described little green tree viper.
0: Yeah, that's it. So, have you got any other business?
1: Oh, yes, I do. (laughs) Almost forgot. So, 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 so. A uh, little bit of follow up on trade stuff. Had a lovely email from Raymond Little, uh, drawing sort of greater attention to how um, I mean. I think we I think we brought it up, but probably quite briefly uh, the regulation isn't so. Rolling back previous episode had a big chat about trading reptiles, yeah,
0: yeah. and
1: this issue that reptiles weren't being monitored, da 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 Kind of worrying when so many species are being traded, we don't really know what's going on. Hmm. Okay. Proposed solution. Let's find out what's going on and regulate stuff. Okay. Great in principle. Big downside. Oh yeah, we did bring it up because we talked about the tokes. But he's brought up uh, additional examples with uh, turtles. Yes. Um... This idea that people are laundering species, individuals as uh, captive bred when really they're wild caught, but also this is additional aspect of literally smuggling animals through hiding them, which is a which is a serious concern. Um, I am I, I'm, I'm not entirely positive of a solution for it other than having a system that you're only allowing import-export, import-slash-export from captive breeders that you're checking up on and that they can provide evidence that they have the uh, materials and and wherewithal and capacity to to breed animals to the numbers that they're exporting. It's still tricky. I think there are sort of developments in... uh, What's the word? Like barcoding stuff which you could sort of tag, you know, you know allegedly what your animals are bred from. Let's say you've got a a cohort that's saying, yep, these are our animals, these are what we're using for our captive breeding. Okay, we know their genetics, therefore you can test the ones being exported and if they're not related, well you they've got to be coming from somewhere else and that's a little bit suspicious. So there's you know, there's ways to tackle this. They're not cheap, but uh they're definitely definitely doable. Because captive breeding should be all very, you know, all very controlled and contained. Yeah, it's it's doesn't necessarily have to be the Wild West if you don't want it to be.
0: We also had a comment from Scott Iper uh, regarding the trade paper that we were talking about. Uh, He asked, has anyone tried to write up a paper or opinion piece to put together an instructional assessment process for the IUCN criteria if there was a process that could allow a newly described taxa to have an interim assessment made by the authors describing them that would stand until the next revision that might be an answer so basically what scott's suggesting is the problem being that newly described species might Mm -hmm. be vulnerable to over collection allow the authors themselves upon describing the species to give it a rating on the iucn so for example they could say yo it's endangered you can't collect these Thoughts.
1: um i mean we, we've done plenty of species of the bi-week and plenty of authors do give recommendations don't they um especially with little endemics
0: yeah, i'd say maybe in like 50 25 percent of cases you yeah
1: 25 that. i feel like it's more common when you i don't know either way uh yeah we'll, we'll I'll meet you in the middle i'll meet you in the middle <laughs> uh in principle yeah why not um you presume that the authors describing the species are likely to have a decent handle on that area, that species. Maybe, maybe not. Don't know. Uh, let's take it as red as they do. Um,
0: so we're envisaging authors who are describing species, knowing a lot about that species group.
1: Well, spec- well, it's it's not just that species group because the taxonomy can com- be completely irrelevant to anything to do with population ecology. Threats, anything like that, right? You could go into a place, find a weird individual, be like, "Oh, look, that's have fantastic knowledge of species and and what you know, sh- what should be there, what what's about, and have absolutely no knowledge on population levels or threat or you know anything to do with sustainability. Those things aren't necessarily attached to each other. Yes, yes, they can be, and yes, you can have people who are very knowledgeable in both, but it's not. A guarantee
0: yeah taxonomists and ecologists aren't always the same people i think is what you're yes. saying and i think you're totally right about that actually
1: well and it's the additional aspect of uh because you're working with trade so now you've got all these human aspects working into it you know you've got demand you've got accessibility you've got but that's by the by iucn thing a lot of the iucn assessments for reptiles are not brilliant A lot of the more sort of elevated ones are based solely on, what is it, criteria B, I think it is, which is the range, the distribution size. Basically, if it's under a certain distribution with X amount of habitat within it, da 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 da, it gets, you know, elevated to a certain level and things. A lot of like new species, or more commonly newer species described, tend to have smaller ranges. So you're already Mm. looking at this scenario where newer species are more likely to be covered by uh, more strict IUCN uh, categorizations simply by virtue of them being site endemics and things along those lines. So, yes, you could have your authors do a, you know, do a survey, work out where they are and uh, give the IUCN a decent estimate that could then go automatically in until something better is done.
0: Yeah, and I mean that. To be honest, that's a big ask. That's a big ask. Like a lot of these species are being described from a roadkill specimen. Do you know what I mean? Like to go from that to a population assessment is a really, really not even
1: population assessment. Just get an idea of where they are. Population assessment is something we don't even have for huge numbers of decently common, widely spread species. Track me down a study that gives a good population estimate or density estimate on king cobras. And they're distributed across Southeast Asia and all over the place. That's the bit that we have this, this issue with, is so much work is needed to get a good assessment. I'm not sure if there's much benefit of... I, I see it being simpler as just being, if it's new species and hasn't been uh, assessed formally, don't trade it. I see it as the, the, the sort of more general blanket default as being an easier less loophole susceptible way than doing it again piecemeal the other slight issue is that iucn status doesn't seem to have much bearing on whether it's traded or not i mean what we found 540 species that were vulnerable or worse being traded um it's not necessarily unless you've got something like a Lacey act in your country where if it's not regulated by cites the import export rules fall down to iucn and then if it's not covered by iucn okay then it's something else but not everywhere has that so you already have this gap where trade isn't connected to the iucn assessments even so you already have to fix that connection in in certain places i don't yeah. i don't know what it is for everywhere i don't know if If cites isn't regulating it, if they look at IUCN, I don't know. I don't know for every country, but I do know for the U.S. with the Lacey Act, that's specifically what it does. Is if it is not covered by cites stuff or or specific regulations, it falls down to IUCN stuff as a uh, like a precautionary sort of situation. So, (sighs) Mm. yes, in principle. It could be useful. Uh, I don't see it doing any harm if the authors can do it. I don't see it as adding much benefit beyond the blanket, like treating it as if it's a new species, you don't trade it. Unless, of course, it's species split stuff, and then you get into this whole other scenario where, (laughs) you know, a cryptic species that looks like another species which is common and can be traded then you can eat quite easily probably get around whatever regulation it is because it looks very similar to something else so you can pass it off as something else.
0: Easy money. Yeah, but
1: then, then you're getting into... Uh, we're kind of, you know, tying it back to uh, Raymond's uh, stuff with the anti-laundering thing. Then you're getting back to this scenario that you do need genetic tests to verify what's being imported, exported, or at least spot checks to deter to deter people from passing it off as different species. I don't know. That's there, There's a lot of detachment and a lot of unknowns when it comes to the populations and even the current IUCN assessments. So I'm, I'm worried that just having more of the same isn't sufficient.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, good answer. All right. So um, that's it. I think, I think I haven't got anything else with you.
1: Uh, nope. I'm going to put the links that uh, Raymond provided up in the show notes for people who want to, learn a little bit more about
0: uh, turtle trade
1: turtle trade stuff and specifically the laundering aspects which are kind of neat if a little bit scary I think that's all I got
0: so if you've got a dirty turtle check out these links how to launder them effectively
1: yeah yeah. all the the tricks of the trade get them them through customs no problem (laughs) put them in your socks
0: no I was making light of them being laundered as in like clothes washing
1: oh I see Well, put them in your socks still works stops them from rattling Brilliant. around and uh, damaging your washing machine.
0: Cool. All right. So all that remains to be said is uh, thank you for listening. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com or we are on Facebook and Twitter. Um, thanks very much to Jeremiah Martin for being our Patreon. If you too would like to have an episode topic of your choosing, you can be our Patreon at patreon.com slash And Yeah, I think that's it.
1: Thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening.